Hey guys, welcome back to the Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud podcast. This is episode 6, and today we're going to be reading chapters 6 and 7, because chapter 6 is pretty short, so I thought, why not? In the last episode, we kind of learned why they are going on this mission. They're trying to stop this sender of messages that children are putting out into the world that are going into people's minds and kind of like... They can't really hear them, but something big is going to happen and it's going to be dangerous. So, Mr. Benedict is trying to stop all that and have Rennie, Kate, Sticky, and Constance stop it. But, at the end of the last episode, we heard the bell on the landing ringing, and that meant that something very bad had happened. So, let's check it out. Chapter 6, The Men in the Maze A great deal happened in a very short time. Mr. Benedict fell asleep, having been startled by the emergency bell, and toppled sideways in the ready arms of number two. The children hadn't even time to trade looks of alarm before the bell stopped ringing. The lights went out and Constance screamed. And then, after much jostling and elbow bumping and fumbling in the dark, Kate found her flashlight and switched it on, and Constance was gone. "'Where'd she go?' Rennie cried. "'Maybe she went down to the landing like we're supposed to,' said Sticky. "'Somehow I doubt it,' said Kate." Okay, all of you, said Rhonda urgently as number two tried to shake Mr. Benedict awake. Hurry down to the landing at once. Milligan will meet you there, and you can find Constance if necessary. Number two and I will join you as soon as Mr. Benedict wakes up. Now run. The children stumbled from the room, Kate leading the way with her flashlight and out into the dark hallway. With the thunder rumbling and the wind moaning and the rain beating on the roof, it would be quite impossible to hear someone sneaking up on them and the children, aware of this, clung to one another in the darkness as they found their way to the stairs. Trembling at each fresh burst of thunder, they made their way down to the landing. Kate's flashlight beamed past over the bell, hanging silent and still, then fell upon a very sad face. "'Where's Constance?' Milligan said. "'What did I tell you?' Kate said to the boys. "'We were hoping she'd be here,' said Rennie. Milligan looked grim, even more so than usual. "'She may have slipped past me in the dark.' This complicates things. No time to take you to a safe place. If she's in the maze, we might lose her any second. But I can't leave you here alone. You'll have to come down with me. Into the maze? Sticky asked. In the dark? There's no help for it. Now grab to my jacket. Sticky and you others grab onto him. Whatever you do, stay with me. And Kate, turn off your flashlight. It will only help them find you. Them? Yes, Milligan said. They've come for you. Now don't speak. None of the children spoke though two of them gulped, and now in the maze they went. The lights were out here, too. They no longer came on when you entered a room. It was perfectly black. In this perfect blackness they moved, stalking from room to room, until Milligan suddenly froze. The children caught their breath. At first, Rennie saw nothing. Then, looking behind him, he glimpsed two flashlight beams passing through one of the other rooms. He squeezed Sticky's arm. Sticky squeezed back even harder. From the direction of the flashlights came a sudden cry of pain. It was Constance's voice, followed by a thudding sound, as if if of someone falling to the floor. A man's voice hissed, I have her. Come, Milligan whispered, hurrying toward the lights. The children followed, holding fast to one another. It was awkward walking so quickly together in the dark, and though Kate moved with the grace of a cat, the boys stumbled trying to keep up. Perhaps they slowed Milligan's progress too much, for when they entered the room a few moments later, the flashlights were gone. The room lay black and still, It seemed quite empty except for a sharp, spicy fragrance that lingered in the air. "'I smell your cologne,' Milligan said, speaking into the darkness. 
I hope you like it, said a man's voice. The flashlight snapped on behind them, casting their shadow on the wall. Now please turn around. Turn around very slowly. Let's all stay nice and calm. Milligan started to turn, but the terrified children, realizing they'd been tricked and not wanting to believe it, clutched at one another and did not move. That's a little too slow, said the voice. Come on now, let's have a look at you. Don't worry, we won't shine the lights in your eyes. I know that's uncomfortable. Milligan pressed the children's shoulders and slowly turned them toward the voice. The man had spoken the truth. The flashlights were pointed downward, and then the glow cast by their beams, Rennie could just make out who carried them. He didn't know what he expected to see, but it wasn't this. Two handsome men, one of them impressively tall, staring back at him with pleasant, welcoming expressions. The men wore tailored suits and large, expensive-looking silver watches, and over their suits they wore fine, long raincoats and that dripped water onto the floor. Both smiled in an expectantly friendly way. In fact, their bright smiles, along with their elegant appearance, were for an instant so surprising and disarming that Rennie almost relaxed. Almost. But then his eyes fell on a lumpy canvas bag in the shadows behind them. One of the bag poked out Constance's tiny feet. "'Did you really think we couldn't hear you coming?' asked the tall man. He spoke cheerfully, as if he and the children were sharing a joke. "'Why, you've heard of a buffalo. Now raise your hands above your heads, please.' Rennie was frightened, but he couldn't see why they should obey. The men seemed to carry no weapons, but Milligan did as the man said. Obviously, he knew something Rennie didn't. And so, with hearts galloping, Rennie and Kate let go of each other and raised their hands. Sticky, however, had grown confused in his fright and would not let go of Milligan's jacket. "'Please tell the bald boy to raise his hands,' insisted the tall man. "'It's all right, Sticky,' said Milligan. "'Do as he says, child. Come now, let's go.' At last, Sticky managed to release his grip. The moment he did so, and to the great surprise of everyone present, Milligan leaped toward an open doorway and vanished from the room. He had moved so quickly and so unexpectedly that no one had a moment to react before he was gone. The men looked at each other and burst out laughing. Rennie felt his mouth go dry. Sticky let out a whimper. "'Some protector,' laughed the shorter man. "'I must say he did a fine job of protecting himself. I'd never seen anyone move so fast.' The tall, tall man chuckled. Did he seem familiar to you at all? Now that you mention it, he did, said the other, scratching his head. Though I can't place how. Anyway, let's get this over with. What are you going to do to us? Kate demanded. Though her tr- legs trembled, her voice was defiant. The tall man tucked his flashlight under his arm and held out both hands, palms forward, and what meant to be a comforting gesture. Now just stay calm, he soothed. Meanwhile, the shorter man was doing exactly the same thing, tucking away his flashlight and holding out his hands. It was then that Rennie noticed the men's huge silver watches were identical, and that for some reason they each wore two, one watch on each wrist. If you children say nice and still, said the tall man, flashing a sympathetic smile, I promise this won't hurt a bit. Oh, come on, let's tell the truth for once, said the other, just for kicks. The tall man rolled his eyes. All right, the truth is this will hurt a lot. But if you hold still, he said, shaking his arms to clear the watches from his suit cuffs, I promise it won't hurt long. Rennie felt Kate and Sticky stiffen behind him. They didn't know what was coming, but they knew it was going to be awful. The men started laughing again. Rennie heard an electrical hum. Abruptly, the laughter ceased. It was interrupted by two odd whistling sounds, 
Swit, swit. Upon which the tall man closed his eyes, dropped his flashlight with a clatter, and sank to the floor. The other did the same thing, slumping unconsciously on top of his partner. The flashlights rolling free sent their bright beams willingly about the room. One of the beams settled on the doorway behind the fallen men, where Milligan now stood holding a tranquilizer gun. He stepped over to pluck two tiny feather darts from the men's shoulders, saying as he did so, Remember, children, for every exit, there is also an entrance. The dining room seemed an altogether different place now. The rain had let up, the drafts were gone, and bright sunlight streamed through the window. Yet the mood in the room was just as dark. On the table, the children's breakfast lay just as they had left it. Only an hour passed since Rennie asked Milligan for tea and honey, but the teapot and honey jar might have well been props in a play. So unreal and insignificant did they seem now. Everyone sat at the table except Constance, who was sitting on the floor. The men in the maze had given Constance quite a shock, an actual shock, delivered by a way of wires that flick like snakes' tons from their watches, she said. And she remained somewhat addled. Her wispy blonde hair stuck out in all directions like a small child's drawing of a sun, and her eyes seemed to roam about independently of each other's. Moments before, she had walked in a circle around her chair, attempting without success to sit in it, then dropped to her bottom on the floor, where she said she believed she would sit for that time being. Mr. Benedict was watching her with a concern. Are you sure she's all right, Rhonda? You examined her carefully? Rhonda nodded. She'll feel better soon. Okay, who were those men? Kate blurted out. Professional kidnappers, Mr. Benedict said. Crafty fellows who work for the sender. You'll recall he uses children to send his messages. So he captures them, Kate said. He has settler methods too, but some children, yes, he captures. His scouts have an uncanny nose for vulnerable children. Don't worry, they've been dispositive far from here and will be unconscious for quite some time, thanks to Milligan. Number two clucked her tongue. If only Constance hadn't gone into the maze. Constance, why on earth did you decide to go down there anyway? I didn't decide to, Constance snapped. I was trying to go to the landing like Mr. Benedict told us to. The boys looked at Kate, who acknowledged with a shrug that she'd been wrong. But I tiptoed down one flight of steps too many. Then I heard someone behind me, so I went deeper into the maze to get away. But they found me, she said with a shiver. They definitely found me. Number two patted her shoulder. Don't worry, Connie. You're safe now. Don't call me Connie, she said crossly. She rose unsteadily from the floor and made another attempt at the chair. This time, she managed to climb into it. I'm glad you're feeling better, Constance, said Mr. Benedict. But won't those men come back? Rennie asked. It's possible, Mr. Benedict said, which is why we must work quickly. As it is, I'm hoping we can avoid detection long enough to launch our investigation. And if we can't, said Constance, as if she'd rather expected failure. If we can't, child, all is lost, Mr. Benedict cried. Instantly he looked regretful. In a softer tone, he said, I'm sorry to raise my voice. Failure in this instance is an upsetting prospect. Now please let me explain. These men intend to take you to a school called the Learning Institute for the Very Enlightened. I've heard of that place, Rennie said. Some kids from the or orphanage wanted to go there. But Mr. Rucker said it was against policy and wouldn't allow it. Doubtless it was, at least against his policy. Aside from being the orphanage director, Mr. Rucker is the headmaster of your academy, is he not? I believe he gets paid per student. Even with those special tutors, asked Rennie. Mr. Benedict gave him a significant look. Rennie was indignant. 
So that's why he wouldn't send me to an advanced school. He wanted me on the academy's rules, just out of greed. It's possible he thought it was in your best interest, Mr. Bendick said. Greed often helps people think of reasons they might not discover on their own. At any rate, it was in your best interest not to go. The Institute will admit any child, but is particularly fond of orphans and runaways. In fact, as you see, such children are sometimes taken to the Institute whether they wish to go or not. The hidden messages are coming from the Institute, aren't they? Renice asked. I believe the school was created for that very purpose, said Mr. Benedict. Every so often the sender must have new children, and the Institute receives a steady stream. I can't believe the sender gets away with it, Sticky said. He's very cunning, Sticky. The Institute is a highly secretive, well-guarded facility. Not the usual thing for a school, you know. Yet it enjoys a wonderful reputation. The hidden messages have convinced everyone of the Institute's great virtue. There's an often repeated phrase in the hidden messages, Rhonda explained. Dare not defy the Institute. Obviously, it's some kind of defense mechanism. Thus, the Institute has completely escaped regulation, Mr. Bendick said. It operates according to its own rules, without any interference. That's outrageous, Kate exclaimed. I can't believe no one goes looking for those kids. I'm afraid runaways and orphans vanish even more easily than government agents do, said Mr. Bendick. Lest you forget, the missing aren't missing, they're only departed. The children looked at one another appalled. I'm glad Milligan was here to protect us, Sticky said with a shudder. The Institute is the last place I'd want to be. At this, Mr. Benedict looked somewhat uncomfortable. He cleared his throat. Yes, well, the scouts won't carry you to the Institute against your will, it's true. But to the Institute, you must certainly go. You are to be my secret agents. That concludes chapter 6, and now we will move on to chapter 7. Chapter 7, Codes and Histories. It took Kate Weatherall about three seconds to embrace her new role as a secret agent, while the other children gapped, blanked, and pinched themselves to be sure they weren't dreaming. Actually, Constance pinched Sticky, who yelped and pinched her back. In short, while the other children were adjusting to the news, Kate was peppering Mr. Benedict with questions. What was their mission to be? Would they need code names? Was it possible to use somewhat longish code name? Mr. Benedict waited until they all calmed down. Then he explained their mission. How they were to be admitted to the Institute the following day. How you would draw up the necessary papers and how, much to Kate's disappointment, they would not be required to use code names. They must be themselves, Mr. Benedict said. They would have secrets enough to keep. What are we to do exactly? Sticky asked. Exactly what they want you to do, said Mr. Benedict. Learn. You must be excellent students. One of the few things we know about the Institute is that certain privileges are granted only to top students. No doubt it is these children who the sender uses to send his hidden messages. So you're hoping we'll gain some secret knowledge, Rennie said. Indeed. How the sender's messages accomplish such profound effects. What the particulars of his plan are. Anything you uncover may help us find a way to defeat him. So that's it, Sticky said. You just want us to be students? Much more than that, Mr. Benedict said. For not only must you learn what they teach, you must also try to learn what they do not teach. Every odd detail, every suspicious aspect of the Institute, any unusual elements at all, you must report to me. You never know what curious tidbit might hold the key to the sender's entire plan. Anything you notice may be of use. Kate was rubbing her hands together. So you want us to sneak around, maybe break into some offices, and... 
Mr. Benedict shook his head. Absolutely not. Kate stopped rubbing her hands. No? You must find out all you can, said Mr. Benedict sternly. And you must report it to me, but you must take no unnecessary risks. Your mission is dangerous enough as it is. Kate looked crestfallen. The other children looked relieved. Now then, Mr. Benedict went on, we must communicate often and in secret. For this, we'll use Morse code. Morse code, Rennie cried amazed. Nobody uses Morse code anymore, said Kate. Precisely why it is useful to us, said Mr. Benedict. As you may know, the Institute is located on No Man's Land Island, which lies in Stonetown Harbor a half mile out. From a hidden position on the mainland shore, we shall constantly watch the island every day and every night, at every moment, your signals will be watched for. It will be up to you to choose the safest time. We'll be ready for it. But we can. But we leave tomorrow and we don't even know Morse code, Constance complained. Actually, I do, said Sticky. I can teach you if you like. Constance stuck her tongue out of him. You're all quick learners, said Mr. Benedict. I have no worries about that. And Constance, he said, raising an eyebrow, I advise you to take Sticky up on his offer, for this is an important point I wish to discuss. You are a team now. Whether you agree is inconsequential, but you must take care of one another, must rely upon one another in all things. I don't exaggerate when I say that every one of you is essential to the success of the team, and indeed to the fate of us all. You must remember that. Constance rolled her eyes. Okay, fine, George Washington, you can teach me that stinky Morse code. Call me Sticky, please. Just plain Sticky is fine. You don't even have to use my last name. When do we begin, George Washington? Sticky scowled. Don't call me that. Kate leaned over to Rennie and whispered, I think we made more trouble than Mr. Benedict expects. It was suggested that the children study Morse code in the dining room, but the afternoon was so beautiful and the shady courtyard so inviting, they begged to pack lunches and study outside. Mr. Benedict agreed on that condition, that no one ventured beyond the gate, and that Milligan accompanied them. So out they went into the courtyard, where Sticky and Constance now sat on a stone bench under the elm tree, while Kay and Rennie sprawled out on the ivory-covered earth nearby. Milligan, disguised as a gray-haired gardener in a straw hat, put a gloomery about the iron fence, tending to the rose bushes. It's a simple code, Sticky was explaining. It uses dots and dashes, short signals and long signals, to stand for letters and numbers. The letter A, for example, is made with one short signal and one long signal, or a dash and a dot. A dot and a dash. Here, I'll show you. Borrowing Kate's flashlight, Kate had her bucket with her as always. Stiggy turned it on and off again very quickly. That was the short signal, the dot, he said. Then he turned it on for a full second. And that's the long signal, the dash. Together they make an A, and the other letters are marked the same. B is a dash and three dots. C is a dash, dot, dash, dot, and so on. It's all written out right here, he said, pointing to the charts Mr. Benedict had given them. Let's practice, Diggy said. Constance, you use the flashlight in the chart to spell out a message, and we'll figure out what you're saying. Constance's hands were so small that she needed both of them to hold up the flashlight, so Sticky held the chart up for her. Squinting at the paper in concentration, she flashed the light once very quickly, followed this with two longer flashes, then paused. Dot, dash, dash, Sticky said. Kate referred to her chart and said, That's a W, isn't it? Constance nodded and flashed the light again. Four quick signals. Four dots, said Rennie. That's an H. Again, Constance nodded, and in this way they proceeded through the rest of her message. 
As Mr. Benedict had remarked, they were all quick learners, but even so it took them some minutes for everyone but Sticky had to keep checking for charts. their charts. Finally, though, Constance flashed the code for her last letter, dash dot, an N. Denton looked expectantly at Sticky, who immediately began to fidget. The message had spelled out, Why did you run? Hey, that's a good question, Kate said. Why did you run away, Sticky? It would take too long an answer to answer in code, Sticky said. Let's just practice with different messages, something short. Skip the code and tell us, Kate insisted. If we're going to be a team, we should get to know each other better. Don't you think, Rennie? She's right, Rennie said. It's best that we all know. I suppose so, Sticky said miserably, but it isn't a very pleasant story to tell. Nor was it a pleasant story to hear, and as Sticky told it, the children's faces grew long, so that they resembled miniature versions of Milligan, who had, in his silent way, drawn close to listen. It turned out that Sticky had once been quite content with his life, the agreeable child of agreeable parents. But the situation changed once his gifts became known. This happened one April day when his mother, whose knees were arthritic, and whose wheelchair needed extra oiling in damp weather, wondered aloud, in a rare fit of irritation, why it had to rain so much. As Sticky helped his mother into her chair, he launched into a detailed explanation of weather systems and local geography. He'd always been a shy, silent child. This was the first time he'd given any hint of his considerable knowledge. His mother checked him for a fever. That evening, she told his father, who asked Sticky to repeat what he'd said before. Sticky did, word for word. His father had to sit down. Then he rose again and went to the den and returned carrying several volumes of an outdated emergency encyclopedia. Questioning Sticky together, the Washingtons discovered that their son, who was only seven at the time, carried more information inside his head than a college professor. Perhaps two professors. With an engineer thrown into boot. Astonished and proud, they could hardly have been more excited if they'd found buried treasure. In a way, they had. For right away, they began entering him in quiz competitions, which Sticky won easily. He took home substantial prizes, a new encyclopedia to replace the outdated one, a new writing desk, a cash prize, a savings bond. The more Sticky won, the more excited his parents grew. They encouraged him to study constantly, to read through their mails together, to stay up late reading, to stop wasting time with his friends. The pressure to win began to be gained began to distract him. His parents grew angry when he missed questions, which he began to do more and more, as he tended to get mixed up when nervous, and scolded him for not caring about them. If Sticky cared, they said he would try harder to win, since only by winning would he bring wealth and happiness to the family. This came as, to, uh, came as a surprise to Sticky, who knew they'd never been wealthy, but hadn't realized they were unhappy. And for him, it was different. The more he won, the unhappier he became. But though he sometimes missed questions whose answers he knew, he still won the contests easily, gaining, an- gaining admission to bigger contests with bigger prizes, until at last his parents were perfectly dazzled by the prospect of fortune, and Sticky was perfectly exhausted. Despite complaining and even begging, however, he couldn't persuade them to let him stop. If he wanted to be rich and famous, they said, he must keep winning. When he replied that he didn't care to be rich and famous, they didn't believe him and said he was only being lazy. Finally, Sticky decided to make a point by pretending to run away. He left a note, then hid for several days in a cellar closet his parents thought was boarded up, but which Sticky had found a way to enter. From there, he was able to venture forth to sneak food, use the bathroom, and do a little spying on his parents. At first, he was pleased by what he saw, 
the Washingtons, extremely distressed, had raised an outcry about their lost son, seeking help from all quarters. But then something unfortunate happened. A rich man, himself a former quiz champion, heard of the case and gave a large sum of money to the Washingtons to aid their search. Word of his generosity quickly spread around, which inspired other philanthropists, unwilling to be outdone, to send even more money. And before long, people everywhere were sending gifts to the Washingtons, who were growing rich. To his great astonishment and mortification, Sticky saw his parents begin trying less and less to find him. Instead of devoting their time and energy toward the proper disposal of the newfound rituals, at what last one day when he managed to overhear his father saying something about being better off now and better off with him gone, Sticky realized, he could no longer bear their betrayal. He ran away for good. I've been on my own for weeks, he concluded, removing his glasses to wipe away a tear. When I saw Mr. Benedict's advertisement in the paper, that's my story. You all know the rest. Now can we get on with the practice? After a short, unhappy silence, the others agreed, and Constance took up the flashlight. Her message went more quickly this time. It was a single word. Sorry. The others were taken aback. Even Milligan, who had retreated to his roses and seemed not to be paying attention, raised his eyebrows. That's okay, Sticky said. Aren't we a depressing bunch, said Kate. If we could continue like this, we'd have to start calling it remorse code. What's remorse? asked Constance. Feeling sad about something you did, said Rennie. Oh, do you feel sad, George Washington? asked Constance. Sticky twitched with irritation. She was talking about you, and please don't call me that. I didn't call you that. I called you George Washington. Asked the others, they heard me. I definitely did not call you that, George Washington. Kate sighed and muttered, so much for remorse. And what about Milligan, Constance asked. Why is he so sad? All eyes went to their bodyguard, who had left off tending the roses and was oiling the gate hinges. He looked as if he could use an oiling himself. He moved quite creakily and with a pronounced stoop, so he truly seemed as old as he appeared in his disguise. He cast not a glance in their direction. Either he hadn't heard the question, or else was pretending he hadn't. But Constance wouldn't let this pass. Milligan, come tell us why you're so dreadfully glum. Good grief, said Sticky. Do you have to drag out everybody's sad tales? Why don't you leave him in peace? She wouldn't listen, however. And after a few more stubborn requests, Milligan at last set down his oil can and shuffled over to them. All right, he said in a resigned tone, I'll tell you. The children all sat up straight. Several years ago, Milligan began, I awoke, blindfolded in a hard metal chair. My hands and feet were cuffed together, a metal restraint held in my head in place. And as I came awake, a man's voice said, This nut is as hard one to crack. Indeed, I felt like I had been cracked. I had a ferocious headache, I was hungry and exhausted, and for some reason my fingers and toes were stinging. Worse, when I tried to recall where I was and how I had come there, I found I couldn't. Amnesia? Rinia said. Milligan nodded. Apparently, I'd received some serious blow to the head. I could recall nothing at all. Not my past, not my purpose, not even my name. To this day, I have no memory of who I am. Then why did you say your name was Milligan? Constance asked almost accusingly, as if he'd lied to them. When I regained consciousness, it was the first name that flew into my mind. Perhaps it was in my fact, perhaps it was in fact my name, but it didn't feel like my name, if you understand me. It seemed to apply to me somehow, and to be important, and so perhaps it is my name, but I'm afraid I'll never know. What happened next? asked Kate. Well, next time I heard the same voice say, 
Let's rouse him again. I grow weary of this one. Then, shaking my arm, he said in a very different gentle tone, Wake up, my friend, wake up. Unaware I had been awake long enough to have heard him discussing me like a cut of meat. Pretending to come awake, I said, What? Have I been asleep? Where am I? To which he replied, You're safe. That's the important thing. We've rescued you from certain death and you are, and are here to help you. Now, is it true you remember nothing? I didn't, of course, as I've told you. And apparently I had told the man this too. But as he now seemed to expect that answer and seemed intent on taking advantage of it somehow, I said, On the contrary, I remember everything perfectly. The man cried, What? You're lying. Hardly, I said. I'm sorry you find it so distressing. Then the voice grew cunning and said, If you remember so clearly, tell me why you are here. I believe I'll leave the telling to you, I reply. The sneak, you're lying to us, you dirty. The man shouted, and then strangely, all was silent, as if someone had clapped a hand over his mouth. After a while, I said, Dirty what? Please tell me, the suspense is killing me. The voice returned much calmer now. It won't be suspense that does it, he said. If you don't crack tomorrow, we'll toss you in the harbor. Well, I'm sure I would indefinitely prefer that fate to the smell of your breath, I replied, upon which he struck me hard across the face and ordered me to be taken from the room. As it happened, the blow did me a good turn, for it loosened the blindfold. I had only just left the room when I, when the bland blindfold began to slip, and through, though my captors didn't realize it, I could soon see fairly well. Two men in suits were leading me along a stone passage. They moved slowly to accommodate my pace, which was hampered by chain-cuffed ankles. As we walked, I studied my hands, still cuffed in front of me, and became aware that I was clutching something. Wonderingly, I opened my fist, noticing as I did so that my fingernails had been bitten beyond the quick, so that my fingertips were raw. This explained why they stung, and judging from the pain in my toes, my toenails had been bitten off as well. In my hand, I discovered a tiny device, rather like a twisted hairpin. To my great surprise, I realized it had been fashioned from my fingernails and toenails. At this, I must have done myself, but I had no memory of it. Imagine then how amazed I was to discover that I knew what the little device was for. I slipped it into the lock of my handcuffs. My fingers seemed to know what they were doing, though I did not. And just as we came to the stairway, I heard the lock spring. I picked it in less than a minute. Before they knew I was free, I had knelt down and cuffed the man's ankles together. Then I hopped out of reach, and my captors tried to pursue, fell on their faces. Before they could regain their feet, I picked the locks of the ankle cuffs, snapped them onto the men's wrists, and bounded down the stairs. After that, my getaway was fairly simple. I broke out into the darkness on a rainy night. I was pursued, of course, but I made my way through the hilly terrain until I came to a cliff overlooking the harbor. The water looked shallow and lay about a hundred feet below me, but as I had no other choice, I dove straight away. There followed some troublesome business of swimming to the mainland, while pursuers and boats tried to capture me with nets and hooks and that sort of thing. But I proved a good swimmer, and the rocks in the channel were terrible for boats. In the end, I escaped. All of this had been spoken softly, without the least trace of excitement or drama in Milligan's voice. But the children listening could hardly contain themselves, and when he'd finished, they burst forth with questions. How had he come here? What was he doing on No Man's Island in the first place? It was No Man's Island, wasn't it? And those men in suits. Yes, it was the same men, the ones you saw in the maze. They weren't sure where they knew me from, but I certainly remember them. And yes, it was No Man's Island. It was the institute that I escaped from. Why I was there, I can't say. But Mr. Benedict isn't convinced I was a secret agent, an employee of the government agency long since dismantled. I have no way of telling. Maybe Mr. Benedict can find out, Rennie said. 
It was that hope that led me to him, Milligan admitted. I'd spent months seeking information about my past, but no one believed my story, and no one had answers. Finally, I learned about the man worth meeting. Not a government agent himself, but a brilliant man of mysterious purposes, who always seemed to know more about everything than anyone else did. This, of course, was Mr. Benedict. But though he's helped me make sense of what's happened, and has earned my loyalty, the entire business is so extraordinarily secretive and complicated that I've long been convinced I will never learn anything about my past. How awful, said Rennie. Yes, it's too bad, said Sticky. Though not quite convincingly, for at the moment he rather wished he could, couldn't remember his own past, given it the grief it had brought him. Hey, does your amnesia have something to do with your silly disguises? Constance asked. Milligan clamped his straw hat more tightly on his head. My silly disguises are useful for other reasons. But yes, Constance, it would be unfortunate if someone, some enemy from my past recognized me, but I couldn't recognize him. It's better never to be recognized at all. So there's really no hope for your memory to return? Kate asked. Oh, I suppose there's some slight hope Mr. Benedict has tried hypnosis and other treatments on me, all without luck. Still, he says it's possible for some significant event or the appearance of an important object or person from my past, or some other unknown thing might break down the door and let my memories out. I'm afraid, however, that I'm mu not much given to hope anymore. If not for hope, what keeps you going, asked Rennie, who had an ugly suspicion that there might come a time, and not so far away, when things would seem hopeless to him, too. Duty, said, Mr. said Milligan. Nothing else. Only a sense of duty. I know the sender is out to harm, and I feel obliged to stop him, or at the very least, to try. And do you think we can? Rennie asked. Do you think you can be stopped? In response, Milligan only went back to his oil can. He did not look at the children again.